me give you a few places to turn to this morning. The first place, if you have your Bible, if you don't, I'm going to read them. But anyway, Isaiah chapter 63. Find that for me. Actually, I said 63. Let's start in 43 and then we'll jump over to 63. So Isaiah 43 is, is the first place. I want you to put something there. Once you've found that, I want you to go to the right, just a, well, handful of books over, to the book of, the book of Jonah, and put something there. And then the last place, I've limited myself to three, but... Anyway, the other ones are easy to find. So the last place is Romans 1. I want you to find verse 18, and I'm going to read down through verse 20 as we stand together, and then we'll turn to the Lord in prayer. So you've got Isaiah 43, you've got Jonah, and now we're in Romans 1, and let me invite you to stand. The reading of the word of the Lord. Again, I'll begin in verse 18, read down through verse 20, and then turn to the Lord in prayer. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, because God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are, what? Without excuse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I echo the prayers of my brothers. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity of worship. Father, first, we thank you for the call of God, because without the call of God, we would not know who you are. We would not know your name, and we would not know the name of your Son, but you have called us to yourself and you have redeemed us at a great and precious price, the blood of your son. You have set us apart as your own through his blood. And we praise you and we thank you for that. So, Father, we thankful or we are thankful to be a part of the church of God, the family of God. We are thankful to have been adopted as the children of God. And so, Father, as we meet together now and open up the Word of God, I pray that your Spirit would be everything to us. I pray that your Spirit would fill me with words that make sense. And I pray that the Spirit would take your Word and make it powerful and effective to pierce our hearts and awaken us from the dead, to breathe life into our cold, dead, breathless bodies and raise us to life in Christ. So, Father, please help us in every way, in every respect, 
to not only hear with our ears, but treasure it with our souls and respond in humble obedience and faith. All this I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the first place that I want you to go is one I trust you can find, and that's in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4. I want to take up the subject of the wrath of God this morning. And to say that's a heavy subject is probably one of the, the worst understatements that I've ever said in my life. I kind of dread walking through this. 118 begins the wrath of God and he doesn't let up until you get to chapter 3 verse 20. So what I'm going to try to do is take us further and further as the weeks go by down into the depths of the wrath of God. But I'm committing to you now that before we finish, I will jerk you back up to the top of the water real quick so you can take a deep breath before I drown you, and then the next week we'll go right back down into the wrath of God. I don't like to talk about this, I don't like to think about this, but the reality of it is, could not be more true. This is a part of the character of God, and since that's where we are in the text, that's where we're going to swim for the next several weeks. But I want to present to you a little bit of a problem, and it's in Genesis chapter 4. You're very familiar with the story, and I'll read to you some of the account. But the story begins in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. There the word of the Lord says, So it, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought up an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but Cain... His offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not you be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and he killed him. And then the Lord questioned Cain and says, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain responded, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God responded, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And I want you to notice the next four words of verse 11. Now you are what? Cursed. And may I add, that's not a good thing. That's a terrible thing. That's something that you never want to hear from the lips of the Lord. You are cursed. That's an eternal thing. But here's my question this morning. What right did God have to do that? Did he ever have a conversation with Cain and say, now look here, son, sit down. I'm going to give you a list of things you can do and a thing, list of things you can't do. And number one on that list of the things you can't do is, son, you can't go around killing people. See, I don't, I don't have any record of that. And the reason we don't have a record of that is because it never happened. 
He didn't give Cain the Ten Commandments. He never presented Cain the book of the law. Cain didn't even have a copy of this book. So what right did God have to hold him? What right did God have to curse him? Just because he killed a man. How do we even know that Cain knew that was wrong? And you go, man, that's absolutely foolish. God didn't have to say anything to him. He, he had to know that it was wrong. Let me make you one worse than that. What about the second murder that took place? We don't even have a record of that in the Bible. And we know it happened. We know somewhere that some guy got mad and he raised up against one of his brothers and he took something, a rock or a stick or something like that, and he put him to death. And God never spoke to that man. Never once did he walk up to him. At least Cain had a conversation with the Lord. At least one that we know of. But the old boy that did the second one, he never once ever had a conversation with God about any of these things. As far as we know, we don't even, we're not even for sure that he actually believed that there was a God. So what right did God have to curse that man? I mean, what kind of God are we serving here? He's going to hold us accountable for the things that we don't even have a clue about. Well, it gets even worse than that if, if you want to follow along with me. Go with me to Isaiah where I had you mark, Isaiah chapter 43. We'll see that something God does here that makes us very uncomfortable. I'll give you a little background as you're turning to this page. Isaiah 43 is God speaking to His people, the nation of Israel. Now, if you remember how this nation came about... God went down to Egypt to rescue them from Pharaoh. And through ten terrible plagues that God poured out on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt, He brought His people out. In fact, in fact, it was so bad that when God rescued the Egyptians from them, He brought them through dry land on the bottom of the sea, and He walked every man and woman and child, as well as their livestock, through that sea on dry ground, and He brought them to the other side. But when the Egyptians and the whole army chased them, and they got in the middle of the sea, God slammed the door shut, and He drowned them all. And you're like, what in the world did the Egyptians ever do to God? This people that you rescued, they must be a much better people. Come on, we know different than that. They're no better than the Egyptians. So why in the world did God put to death an entire nation and yet rescue just one select group of people when they were no better than the people He put to death? What kind of God is this? Look at what he says to his people. It's, it's, it'll grab you by the throat. It makes you very uncomfortable. Isaiah chapter 43, look at verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Notice what he says, For I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then notice what he says next, I have given Egypt as your ransom. I have given Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men 
in your place and other people's in exchange for your life. What? That's exactly what God did. God says, now I've picked my group of people. I've redeemed them and I've brought them to me. In fact, I will be known to them as your Lord. We're going to have a personal relationship. And you're going to call me mine and I'm going to call you mine. And we're going to be together. And everybody else, the rest of the world, I've walked away from them. They will not know me by name. They will not receive the Ten Commandments. They will not have a copy of my law. And then we cry out, then you've got no right to judge them. If you're not going to reveal yourself to them, how dare you judge them? So what did God do to the rest of the nations? Did He just leave them alone? Did He just walk away from them and go, you know what, I didn't rescue you, so I'm just going to kind of let you be whoever you want to be. I'm not going to hold you accountable because you're not mine. They're mine, but you're not mine, so I'm just going to let you be. Did God do that? Oh, not at all, not at all. You're in Isaiah 43. Now turn to Isaiah 63, and you'll see what God did to these other nations. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Now, I love this. This is Isaiah evidently is having a vision and he's having a conversation with the Lord and he asks two questions. And I love when you ask questions because you figure out so much. But notice Isaiah's first question. Who is this that comes from Edom? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And notice the response of the Lord. Oh, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now the first question is, Lord, what are you coming? What are you doing coming down from Eden, Edom? Why are you there? You remember where Edom is? That's the land of Esau. That's the people that God rejected. Remember? Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And Lord, what you been doing up in Edom? Those are not your people. You had rejected them. You said you hated them. So why are you coming down from Edom? Well, look at the second question Isaiah asked. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Notice the response of the Lord. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no one else with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in, their, in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my raiment. What? Yeah, I trampled them to death, and their blood is on my clothing. I got a question. God, what right do you have to do what you just did? Your clothing is covered with the blood of those you have put to death. You don't even know those people. You've never revealed yourself to those people. Why would you ever pour out your wrath and put them to death? Now, lest you think you've got this figured out, turn with me now to the book of Jonah. I'm just trying to lay a foundation for Romans 
You get to the book of Jonah, you know what it's about. It's about the city of Nineveh. Now the Assyrians lived in Nineveh. I'm not actually going to read this. I just want you there because we're going to turn just a couple of pages. But Assyria and Nineveh was the capital. And these were probably some of the worst people God had ever created. They were absolutely ruthless in their warfare. They are those that they make movies about today. And you're like, where do they get some of this stuff? And much of it is history from the Assyrians. They used to stick you alive on a pole and y'all let your imagination run. They would set you down on that pole and it would come out your mouth and they'd leave you stuck up on that pole. And they'd go around the city picking you up and slamming you down on that stake and they'd leave you there to die. What a horrible thing. Other historical records that they would bear you up to your neck and they would nail your tongue out and they'd put a little honey on that and the ants would take over and that's how you died. These were horrible people. And you're like, God, if you're going to go put your white robes on and go trample somebody to death, I've got a group of people that I want you to see first. They're the Ninevites. And so did God go down there and trample them and sprinkle their blood on his clothes? No, not at all. He said, hey, Jonah, come here. I want you to go down to Nineveh and I want you to preach the gospel and call them to repentance. And you get the idea, Jonah don't want to go. No, God, I don't want to go. You go. You go and you put on those boots and you stomp them to death. Why in the world would you want to share your gospel with such a ruthless people? So Jonah goes down there with a chip on his shoulders and he preaches. This is the gospel that Jonah preaches. 40 days and you're going to die. God's love implied. That was it. And he got this old man walking around that looks like he's been dead for about three days and a fish probably swallowed him whole. And the only thing that he's doing is going, 40 days and you're all going to be trampled by God. And the Spirit of God so moved that the king of Nineveh made everyone repent, even the cattle and the sheep and the donkeys. He put sackcloth and ashes on the animal and he forced everyone to repentance. And did God kill them? No, God spared them out of His mercy and His grace. And if you remember, Jonah was mad about it. And to be honest with you, we'd be mad about that too. Because they deserved the wrath of God. Well, God wasn't done with Nineveh. So if you're in Jonah, turn just a couple of pages over to the book of Nahum. Go through Micah. Go through Nahum, or go to Nahum chapter 1. Now here's the deal. It's been a hundred years. A hundred years since a man walked through Nineveh preaching in 40 days, you're going to die, and they repented. When you get to Nahum, God sends another prophet. If you'll notice verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh. God sent another preacher down there. Verse 2, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. 
The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord, but the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way. Clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Flowers of Lebanon, they wither. Mountains quake with fear. And because of Him, hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved. In other words, the earth pukes at His presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger and His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him? Turn the page to chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Nahum goes on. Chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, Nineveh. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness. To the kingdoms, your disgrace. I'll throw filth on you. I'll make you vile. I'll set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where can I find comforters for her? You get the picture. It's been a hundred years. At least two generations. And the best that they've got is... Maybe some old boy said, you know what? My great granddaddy said that there was somebody that rolled through this city about a hundred years ago. Looked like he had been dead for about three days and he was just shouting, in 40 days you're going to die and the whole city repented. But man, that was a hundred years ago. And do you realize since that time, the Lord had not lifted one finger or spoken one word or sent one prophet down to Nineveh and called that generation to repentance? They had nothing and nobody. And when God wiped them out, listen, God's wrath fell on the city in the year 640 B.C. We didn't find Nineveh. We thought it was just a fairy tale, but they dug it up in 1840. Now, if you want to put a pencil to that, that's roughly 2,500 years. God put it in the ground. And like I said, we didn't think it was real till we dug it up. Now, how could God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God do that to a nation of people who had never heard the love of God and the mercy of God and the Word of God? Well, that brings us to Romans chapter 1. So if you'll turn with me there, I want to show you something. We'll just walk down through this passage. But I want to begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God. Now I want you to look at those four words. Because you don't think about those four words very much at all. And like I said when I began, I, I sure don't blame you. 
I mean, if I'm going to sit on my back porch in the morning and drink coffee and think about the glory of the Lord, I'm probably going to think about His love and I'm, I don't really want to think about His wrath at all. And in fact, I would say that you could scarcely find a preacher in our day and time that would ever say anything about the wrath of God. And if you walked into a church of any size, certainly what they would refer to as a mega church, you would never hear anything about the wrath of God because if you're going to talk about that stuff, people aren't going to stay. It's interesting when you think about this country. In the early 1700s was known as the Great Awakening and there were only 13 colonies. There was none of those 50 states. And God used really a boy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And I've, I've written down much of his sermon, but I encourage you to write down Jonathan Edwards. Go to YouTube and type in sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it was preserved. And there's several men on there reading it. And I want you to hear a sermon that was preached in the 1700s. And it said of Edwards that he couldn't see well and he couldn't write well, and he read his sermons word for word. So we picture a little old boy leaned over a pulpit reading his sermon and said he wouldn't use any kind of a inflection of voice. He'd just read his sermons. And in that sermon entitled Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God, he talked much about the wrath of God and the sin of man. And he painted a picture for those people that None of us would like. And he talked about the angry hand of God extended out over the pits of hell. And he said, upon his hand, you sit. And there's nothing in between his hand and the fires of hell at all but thin air. And you weigh about the same as lead. And he talked about the fact that God is more angry with you than, he owes, than those who are already in hell because he said justly they're getting what they deserved in the fires of hell, but you hadn't gotten yours yet, so he's more angry with you right now and he has no good reason not to remove his hand and let you fall and let Satan receive you into his gaping mouth. It's a terrible sermon. It's 50-something minutes of that. And it said by the time he got finished, his congregation, and he was speaking to a church, his congregation was shrieking and wailing out in holy fear. People were trembling. And that was what God used to get that thing started that was known as the Great Awakening where people turned from their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifty years later came the second great awakening, except that was led by a different group of men. Lyman Beecher was one of them. Charles Finney was another one of them. And they didn't like the wrath of God and they didn't talk about the wrath of God. They liked the love of God. And beloved, I like the love of God too, but that's not all I can stand up here and talk about. So they talked about the love of God and your decision for Jesus. I wrote down a comment from Charles Finley. It's, it's terribly frightening, but I want you to see how horrible things had changed. Let me see here if I can find it real quick. Here you go. 
This is the second great awakening, 50 years after the real one. It says, Finney taught that preachers had important roles in producing revivals. And he wrote in the early 1800s, a revival is not a miracle or dependent upon a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of man's self-created efforts. Now you know why I don't do revivals. Finney said revivals are manufactured by the preacher. And that's why preachers lifted up their head and stopped trusting in the Holy Spirit and started trusting on their ability to present a sermon and run around and say all kinds of goofy things to elicit some. They would sit you on the front row if you didn't know the Lord and they called it the anxious seat. And they'd go on and on and on and on about you until you made some kind of decision for Jesus and then they'd pronounce you saved and they'd go right on to the next church. Fifty years and we moved away from the wrath of God and walked into something. And now, you look how bad we've become and how weak the pulpit is. Oh man, God loves everybody and He accepts everyone unconditionally without any sort of regard for anything that's going on in our life. He just accepts us all. That's the God that we worship today. That's the idol that we've made. But look back at verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. How do we know? Because God has made it evident to them. You cannot find a man who has ever been born that doesn't understand the reality of God. Let me give you some idea of this. There is a group of people that live in the Sahara deserts. I don't know if it's the Fulani or the Amaziah. I think it's the Amaziah people. They're nomads. They ride around on camels all day. They move from place to place in the desert. The men and the women, the children, the whole family does. And believe it or not, we actually have missionaries who have walked away from this life and they put their kids and their wife on a camel and they've gone out into the Sahara Desert to preach the gospel to these people. But you walk up to one of these Amazigh guys and say, hey, man, let me ask you a question. He says, all right. What's a tree? He goes, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what a tree is? He says, man, I, I have no clue what you're talking about. He says, well, get on my camel. Let's go for a ride. And they ride up to the northern part of Africa and they top the hill and they see this glorious thing sticking up out of the ground. And the man goes, what in the world is that? And you say, man, that's a tree. You ride him over to that tree and you say, get off here and go stand right under that tree where it's dark. And he looks at you and you go, no, trust me, it's okay. Go right under there and stand where it's dark, right up under that tree. And the man walks up under that tree and he goes, my goodness, I've never felt so good in my life. What do you call this? And you go, man, that's shade. He said, this is absolutely glorious. Never seen anything like this in my life. I'll be right back. And you say, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go back and get my wife and my kids. We're going to live under that tree. Now you've got enough sense. You understand what a tree is. But on the way back, you say, hey man, I've got another question for you. He goes, what's that? And he said, you believe in God? 
That man's going to have one of two responses. Yes, I do. Or no, I don't. But what he is not going to say is, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean? God? How do you pronounce that? No, he's not going to say that. Because God has put the reality of His being in the man's very soul, and He knows exactly what you're talking about. Now, I'll tell you what man has done, how sinful they are. I know the Fulani people have done it. I don't know about the Amaziah, but the Fulani people who are nomads in the desert, oh, they have a God, and His name is Muhammad. And when they die, their God's going to give them 10,000 virgins. And you're like, wow, that's some more God. But let me tell you something. That's what we call an idol. It's not the God of the Bible. He had the reality of God, but he wanted to create a God that was suitable to him. He didn't want to understand that the God who is in Scripture, who created the heavens and the earth, whose son's name is Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to know about that God, but he's willing to worship some God, so he created his own. But what you won't find, I don't care where you go, if you find a man that's able to live on the bottom of a sea, you can ask him the question, do you believe in God? And he's either going to say yes or no. He's not going to say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And you can say, what do you, what do you mean you believe in God? Have you ever seen God? you never seen a tree. You didn't even know what I was talking about. I know you've never seen God. How can you believe that there's a God? Well, I just do. I can't explain it. You realize the word atheist, people identify as atheist. It's so ignorant. It's the word teheos or theos, and you put the A or the alpha in front of it and it negates it. So atheist literally means anti-God. You know, there's a Greek word for tree. I think it's suke. No one identifies as an asuke. I just don't believe in trees. I don't care. You may say you got them in your yard, but I don't believe in them. I'm Asuke. No one does that because it's absolutely ignorant. Then why do they run around identifying as atheists? Because the reality of it is in their own heart and they hate it and they deny it. And they go to the ultimate end of saying he does not exist. He does not exist. And they hold conferences and they hang out together. And there's a website for them because they're trying to encourage them in their unbelief. Because they know if it's just them alone, they can never stand up against the reality of God. Because it is written on their hearts. Therefore, they call themselves anti-God atheists. But back to this business of the wrath of God and the fact that He has made every man that's ever been born understand the reality. And notice verse 20. He's done this since the creation of the world. And because the reality of God is in them, His invisible attributes have been made aware to them. His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood so that so being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Look at verse 21. For even though they, what? Knew God. They did not honor God or give Him thanks. And so God has poured out His wrath, back up in verse 18, on men. You do understand that, right? I told them last Sunday night, we say, love the sinner, hate the sin. 
And we put God in that boat too. Oh, no, no. God, God loves the sinner. God hates the sin. And yes, I, I am aware of John 3.16 very clearly. But I do want you to understand that hell is not full of sins. Hell is full of sinners. God is not pouring out His wrath on lies. God is pouring out His wrath on liars. God is not pouring out His wrath on adultery. God is pouring His wrath out on adulterers. Sin is full, I mean hell is full of sinners. And so God pours His wrath out on men. And it goes on to say, men who suppress the truth. Now this is a fascinating word. Kateko. It's used in, in Hebrews. I think Cody read this one of the passages that contains this word. It literally means to hold fast. And you're like, wait a minute. God is pouring out His wrath on men who hold fast the truth? No, the context will shift the word just a little bit. They hold it so tightly, they restrain it. It is written on their hearts. God never had to tell Cain, Cain, don't kill a man, because he'd already written on his heart that this is wrong. And he never had to say it to any man that's ever been born, because every man that's ever been born knows that murder is wrong. God never had to tell a man that adultery is wrong. If you go on the other side of the planet and find a half-naked man walking around with a spear... Say, hey man, you know adultery is wrong. And he says, you mess with my wife and I'll show you how wrong it is. I'll stick my spear right through you. He doesn't even know God. He's never heard the name Jesus Christ. But you mess with his wife and he'll show you the wrath. You see, the truth is written on your hearts. You know it's there, but you suppress it, you restrain it. Kind of like those babies you have in your lap. Everybody in here has had a baby in church. It's hard. And with all your babies come backpacks. Because with all your effort, you're going to try to keep that baby quiet so you have a bag of restraints. You've got a pacifier in there. And if those eyes start moving around, you're thinking, oh no, he's waking up. You reach in that bag and you pop that past and you go, I restrain this thing. Got to keep him quiet. Before long, he's figured out he's hungry and he starts spitting at that past and he keeps falling out. You keep shoving it back in. Then suddenly it all falls out on the floor and you reach in there and out come the Cheerios and the crackers. You start shoving food in that baby, trying to keep that baby quiet, trying to restrain it. And then when he's throwing the Cheerios at the person sitting in front of him, out come the toys. We've got to distract this thing. We've got to keep it quiet. You do it all the time. But do you realize we do that with truth that is written in our hearts all the time as well? You know what to do. You know right and wrong. And right starts welling up in your heart and you reach in your back pocket and you try to find a passage and shove it in the mouth of truth because you've already figured out what you want to do. And you don't want nobody telling you that it's wrong. And so you've got all kinds of ways to slide around truth, to suppress truth, to bind truth, to restrain truth. And that truth just won't to scream. You know this is wrong! You say, oh, shut up. Here's some Cheerios. You munch on that while I do it anyway. 
See, we're under this impression that free will is what makes us accountable to God, that every man has to hear the gospel. And it goes, this lie goes so far to say that when men die who have never heard the gospel, Jesus preaches the gospel to them and they can accept it or reject it. If they reject it, they're off to hell. If they accept it, they go on to heaven. That is not in this book. Every man is guilty before the Lord, whether he hears the gospel or not. And every man that dies apart from the Lord Jesus Christ goes straight to hell. And God is perfectly justified because he's written truth on their heart. And they squash it every single day. And in fact, you have so suppressed and restrained truth in your heart, you don't even hear its cries. Men, I'm talking to you. You ever been sitting on the couch and that infant screaming and crying and your wife goes, you hear that thing? And what do you say? No, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't even hear it. And you get up off the couch and you go in there. You just gotten so used to that baby crying and so used to your wife taking care of that baby. You just turned it off. You suppressed it so long you don't even hear the child cry anymore. And truth's been crying your whole life and you keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it down. We do it all the time and therefore God is perfectly justified in putting Nineveh to death. He's perfectly justified in putting Edom to death. He's perfectly justified in putting Esau to death. And He's perfectly justified in putting all of us to death. But He didn't do that. You see, in the middle of God's wrath, God built a refuge. And the refuge is His Son. And let me tell you why I know that that refuge will survive God's wrath, because it, He's already done it once. God poured out His wrath unmitigated wholeheartedly on His Son on Calvary for the sake of our sins. You see, somebody's already died for you. Somebody's already suffered the wrath of God for you. And it was His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world aren't all of us going to heaven to be with the Lord? You know, there's an instance in the Old Testament, I think it's in the book of Numbers. God was judging. He had sent His wrath on His people in the form of venomous snakes. Had it up to here with their rebellion. So He sent snakes among them and they were biting the people. And as soon as they were bit, they were dying. And they started crying out to God, God save us. So God made a pole. He had Moses make a pole. And he put a bronze snake on it. He jabbed that pole in the ground. And He said, just look at the snake and you'll live. Can you imagine the scene? These god-awful snakes are crawling everywhere. People are screaming when they get bit. Half of them's laying on the ground dead. This is a horrible scene. And the gospels preach, look at the pole and you'll live. Do you believe some of those people didn't look at the pole? I'm like, what in the world are you doing? How stupid. For goodness sake, look at the pole. But I can do you one better than that. You're dying in your sin, in your death. And God stuck His Son on a pole. And He said, look at my Son and you will live. 
And do you realize the Bible says the majority of the people will never look at the sun? Never once will they turn away from their sins and look to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He is doing on that tree for them. They won't look in order to live. They'd rather hang on to their sin and figure out their own way of how to get out of these snakes. Part of that young man's sermon that I was talking about just a few minutes ago, Jonathan Edwards this is where he really got the people. And I'll be done with after I finish this. He said, you know, there's a many of you who've made plans. He uses the word contrivance. It's a noun which means schemes. He literally said, oh, you've been scheming about how you're going to avoid hell. You've made all these glorious plans of things you've done or things you're going to do to try to escape hell. He said, but you've never stopped once to consider that everyone in hell is just as smart as you are. You think they never made a plan? You think they never decided in their heart, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to say this, I'm going to pray this. I've got a plan, I've got a scheme to get myself out of the fires of hell. He said, what, you think they're dumb? You think they haven't considered hell? You think they didn't make plans? He said every one of them made a plan. Every one of them knew about the reality of God in their own heart. And they made a plan. Except their plans failed. Right? Their plans failed and the fire swallowed them and the wrath of God consumed them. And he says here you sit in your plans and your schemes thinking you're going to escape the fires of hell. I hope that's none of us. I hope you haven't made a plan. I hope you haven't made a scheme. I hope you realized what God has done through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you realize that you're guilty. You know what you do with truth in your own heart. You know how you squash it. You know how you silence it. You know how you turn away from it and deny it and reject it. All the while going, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. You know what you're going to say about yourself when you find yourself undone before God? Oh, how foolish. Oh, how foolish. Oh, how foolish I was. cannot encourage you enough this morning. I beg you, I implore you, I plead with you to turn away from your sin and run to the Lord Jesus Christ and call out to Him to forgive you until He does it. Beg God for forgiveness. Don't eat. Don't sleep. Don't get off your knees or your face. Scream well and whine to God until He does a work in your heart and rescues you from the wrath of God. You do realize that God is saving you from Himself. But in His love, He has done it. And He is willing to do it to all those who will call out to Him and trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.